Please join me and pray with me. Father, thank you for your grace to us. I would ask in the name of Jesus that you would lift our eyes off of the things of this world, as good and important as they are for these few minutes, Lord, to think through and to think about even greater truths, eternal truths, transcendent transcendent truths that go beyond even our lives and that which involves us directly. I pray, uh, Lord, that we would find your kingdom to be glorious, that we would find it to be immensely practical and significant and important for our lives. Father, give us grace to hear these words and, and be transformed by them through the power of your spirit. I pray this name of Jesus. Amen. You know, many leaders in my life over the years have, have said that if you can trust the man, then you can trust the words of the man. Or if, if a woman is of strong character, then, then her words uh, will be believable. And that's just a simple truth from Scripture, actually, that out of the overflow of the heart, uh, the person will speak. And I, I think we've seen in these first four chapters of Matthew that, that he's done a masterful job in revealing to us the glory of Christ. Uh, that, that, you know, when you think back, just because this is the last in a series, and then we'll, we'll stop Matthew for a little bit and pick it back up later. You know, if you go back to chapter one, we found that Jesus was the son of he was the son of Abraham and the son of David. In other words, all those two big men in redemptive history and all the promises that were given to them were inherited by Jesus. Not just the son of Abraham and David; he's also the son of God. We find in the second half of chapter one that that the the Spirit conceived Christ within the womb of Mary making him the divine son. So this is a unique and glorious son who we found also would be the king as in chapter 2, wise men came to worship him. And and at the same time, this king with a kingdom is immediately attacked and uh, his life is threatened by Herod. And then, of course, Matthew goes silent there in those years of upbringing and he picks it back up in chapter 3 where John comes, and we're introduced to this man named John the Baptist, who now begins announcing that Jesus, this king, is ready to lead, to announce, and to inaugurate his kingdom. And, uh, and then, of course, Jesus comes, and he is kind of coronated, if you will, in that baptism scene. He, he goes into the water, and the Spirit of God descends upon him, and, and God's voice confirms that he is my son in whom I have great pleasure so, so you see the scene, and then, and then after the coronation, Jesus is king, ready to begin walking out the ministry that the Father's given him, and what happens? He's thrust right into the wilderness, right to fight, right in that area of temptation where Israel had fallen and fallen repeatedly. And of course, Jesus emerges victorious. He emerges faithful to carrying the message in the ministry of God on a cosmic level after doing battle with the dark one. So you have this scene, and it's leading up now in verse 11. We're like, well, what's happening next? When is he going to take the scene? When is he going to make the move to announce the kingdom? And that's what we find in our verse today. That Jesus now, he's been tested, he's been tried, he's been found glorious. We trust him. His character is glorious. He's, He's from Abraham, he's from David, he's from God. He's the one we want to listen to. He's our champion. What does he have to say to us? 
And so he begins his ministry. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, and we'll just read 12 to 17. This is really a major shift in the Gospel of Matthew. Now we go away from hearing about him, and now we're going to hear from him. And he is going to issue his first ministerial words today. Okay, in verse 12, he says, Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the, and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time on, he began, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus is going to do two things, I think, here, or at least this is how I'm going to break it up. Uh, the first is he's going to reveal the nature of the kingdom in these passages. We're going to get a snapshot of this is what the kingdom's going to be like, and then he's going to call us to respond to that kingdom, or, frankly, uh, to reject what he's saying is being revealed. So, I mean, and that's kind of, he's going to do something, and then the expectation is we're going to respond either by, either by uh, repenting or by rejecting. So look with me real quick, just three things about the kingdom I want to point out to you. First is that the kingdom is going to come with suffering, with conflict. Look in verse 12, he says, Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Okay, John was arrested. John, the cousin of Jesus, arrested. So his earthly ministry is now finished. Now, we're not told in this passage why he was arrested. We have to go to Matthew 14 to find out that he had denounced Herod, the son of the Herod, trying to kill Jesus, uh, denounced him for having an illicit relationship with his brother's wife. And so he, of course, is arrested. And in, in prison, he's going to stay until his disciples come and take his lifeless and, in fact, his headless body out of that prison and bury him. You won't see any more. That's the end of his ministry. It says then Jesus withdrew to Galilee. I don't want you thinking Jesus was frightened over some political power. Well, Herod is over Judea, and so I'm going to fly to the north of Israel to Galilee. No, Herod was king over both areas. Jesus wasn't withdrawing out of fear. We're going to find out why later. But what we, what we see here is the fact that Matthew introduces Jesus' ministry on the heels of John's imprisonment is telling us something, that the kingdom of God is going to come with great conflict. I mean, John and Jesus' ministry have been parallel. John came preaching. Jesus comes preaching. John is going to suffer. Jesus is going to suffer. This shouldn't have been new to Jesus. I don't believe it was. I'm sure his parents would have told him that, in fact, at his birth he was threatened. You know, at his baptism, he went down under the water, symbolizing the burial that he would have to endure. But also, the ministry that Jesus had before this. See, see, Matthew jumps from verse 11, the temptation of the wilderness, right to 12. Now, there was some activity there that John's gospel picks up. Actually, he did some ministry, like the, the miracle at the Feast of Cana. You see the Samaritan woman took place between verse 11 and 12. He even went back to Nazareth. We know that because, look, Matthew says when he left Nazareth. Now, if you were to go, Matthew doesn't have it, but Luke does, the scene in Nazareth is this. Jesus goes to his hometown, and he, begins pre- he, he goes to the synagogue, <clears throat> and they hand the scroll to him, and they read Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61 is a, a text about a servant that will come with the Spirit. And this servant's going to preach freedom to people who are captive, give sight to the blind. 
He's going to preach release to the oppressed. He's going to preach that God's favor is now being displayed. And then Jesus reads that and he says, Today this has been fulfilled in your midst. That's bold. He's saying, I'm this quintessential servant. I'm the one fulfilling the text. Well, you'd think they'd rejoice. They'd been waiting. What do they do? In Luke 4.14 on, they take him to the end of a cliff. They want to throw him off. They want to kill him. So Jesus, leaving Nazareth, comes to Capernaum. So his ministry is going to be, it's initiated in suffering and conflict, and it will continue on. That's the nature of the kingdom. Now, Christian, for the Christian here, this is important to know. It may be a simple thing to you. You may already know it, but let me remind you of this truth that there is conflict with the introduction of God's kingdom into a kingdom of men. Now, there's much suffering that we go through because of our stupidity or our sarcasm, our rudeness or our mistakes. But, but there is a conflict that comes when we speak about and live in accordance with God's kingdom because God's kingdom is antithetical to the kingdom of men. This is the problem in the garden. Men want to do what men want to do. Women want to do what women want to do. The introduction of God's kingdom brings in a conflict. I mean, I, I think about uh, the message of the kingdom is a message both of salvation, we love that, it's a message of judgment. There is judgment in the message of Christ, and people don't want to hear that. You know, we're in this time of graduations, and uh, speech after speech is given about what the graduates can do, and they can change the world. And, and, and I do want to encourage people to strive with the gifts that God has given them. But at the end of the day, we can't change the world apart from God. I, I mean, the message is given by modern man is that all that is needed to do all that we need is contained within you. Sorry, that just isn't true. But that message sells. It makes me feel good. I've got the power within me to do everything. And the reality of it is, it's, it's coming into conflict with the kingdom of God. Even the tension within our own souls. You know, as Christians, I often battle with my own kingdom and God's kingdom. I mean, my flesh wants to go a certain way, my spirit wants to go a certain way. So there is conflict in this kingdom, both externally but also internally. And I think we do well to remember that. You're not doing something wrong. That's why Peter said, he said, it shouldn't surprise you that you're suffering. That's the nature of God's inbreaking kingdom to a world that is opposed to God. If not actively, at least passively, they're opposed to wanting to follow God and submit. Again, you go back to the garden, you see that. Okay, that's the first thing about the kingdom. It's an important thing to consider. But secondly, this kingdom that's going to bring such conflict is also going to be a kingdom that offers great hope to the nations. Look where Jesus goes when it says that he goes to Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, we don't believe Jesus left Nazareth or left Judea to go to Galilee of the Gentiles. Um, Many authors will say, well, Jesus went up to northern Israel because there... uh, there was greater population, it was more populated, as well as it was trading routes were through northern Israel in a greater measure than they were in southern Israel. And so Jesus is just going there to, in fact, kind of bring his message to a wider audience. Well, I think Matthew tells us why he went to Galilee. Galilee, remember, was a backwater town. Remember, Galilee was a mixed town, a mixed province. It was filled with uh, mixed racially, uh, mixed religiously. And so he goes to this backwater town to begin his ministry. Why? 
Well, Matthew tells us it's to fulfill the prophecy made in Isaiah 9. Now, look at what he says here. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee, Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them a light is dawn. Now, in Isaiah, the context here is that Assyria, this power from the east, is going to crush Israel and, and is going to deport them. It's going to be disastrous. It's darkness and gloom, shadow of death. I mean, people die in these events. The whole nation of Israel is going to be uprooted and torn apart. It's a terrible thing to know that an invading pagan army is going to take and displace the people of God. That's what's going to happen. But in this promise, in this prophecy that it's coming, there is a promise that a light will be brought forth. A light will dawn. Now, here's what's interesting. If you just go a few verses later in Isaiah 9, you find that the deliverer is going to be the son of David. That's that great passage we always read with Christmas. For unto us a son is born. Unto us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. In other words, Matthew is looking at Jesus and he's saying, oh, I get it now. Okay, there's Isaiah, okay, Assyria, going to conquer, lead them into a political darkness, a national darkness, but now Jesus is coming bringing a light. He's not going to deliver them politically, but spiritually and morally. In other words, this Jesus is going to be like a new Moses. I mean, Moses is going to go and retrieve the people who are captive, and he's going to lead them out. Jesus is going to be this light to draw them out of this spiritual and moral darkness. And you kind of see it, because if we could read through Matthew, Jesus is going to next, in the very next passage, Jesus is going to call 12 men. Ring a bell, maybe 12 tribes of Israel. He's forming a new covenant community is what he's going to do. And then what happens after that? After he calls these new tribes of Israel, so to speak, he's going to then perform miracles. And he's going to be pushing back this kingdom of darkness, right? He's going to be healing people and raising people. And his fame is already going to spread all the way to Syria. In other words, all the nations are going to see Jesus. But then you go after that to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and you get teaching from a mountain. Again, Moses is in your mind right now. So Jesus is setting up this new covenant community. This is the kingdom that he's establishing. It's profound. So why start in Galilee of the Gentiles? Well, because this new covenant community isn't by ethnicity. It's not by Jewish blood. It's all the peoples. This is why we don't need another temple. This is why we're not looking for Israel to be having all the promises of God pressed upon them. That's not going to happen. It's upon the church. This is the new covenant community. It's not going back to old patterns and shadows. This is the covenant community. So what we see is this kingdom is for all people. All people are spiritually blind. It's not just the pagans. It's all people. It's not that we don't know about God. It's not that we don't believe in God. We, we believe in all kinds of gods. But, but when I think Jesus is coming here, he's assuming all need to know about God as Jesus will describe God. So the fact that Jesus is coming, he says in John 1.18, he says, I've come to explain him, or the word is exegete him. That Jesus said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In Hebrews 1, it says, Jesus is the exact representation. In other words, you cannot know God 
truly and savingly apart from Jesus. That's why he's the light. He's going to dispel the spiritual darkness and bring in truth, truth that we need. There are truths that you can know about God, but not saving truths. General revelation teaches us much about the power and the glory of God, but it doesn't lead us to him as a father, as a king. But not just spiritually, morally. We are morally adrift. I mean, not just are we trying to redefine marriage and trying to figure out our own sexuality. We are adrift. I th- it reminds, it me, reminds me of in the uh, book of Jonah. God says about Nineveh, a leading city at the time, 120,000 people, and they don't know their right from their left. And Jesus has come to bring us to a place of, of moral straightness and moral rightness. I'm not talking about conservatism here. I'm speaking of biblical truth about who we are and how we live before God. So, so that's the second thing. There's first this idea of suffering is with the kingdom, but also the kingdom is for all people. And then look, this kingdom that Jesus is bringing is a present reality. Look with me in verse 17. He says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. Now, I just want to stop there, not because I'm a preacher, uh, but all the ways Jesus could have brought forth this message of a kingdom. All the ways that Jesus could have established a kingdom, and he chooses to preach. Not even miracles. He'll do miracles, but it's only to authenticate his preaching. He, no new armies, no new governmental systems, no legislation. He just comes and preaches. I mean, it kind of is odd in our day, isn't it? I mean, and preaching today is seen as quite judgmental. People are getting accused of kind of hate speech by preaching. You know, people often say, oh, you're a preacher. Yeah, as if they're kind of looking down on me. Don't preach to me, we say. I mean, so preaching has taken on some seriously judgmental and dark overtones. And yet Jesus has chosen to preach of all things. It's kind of funny that way. And what's he preach? Well, he preaches that the kingdom of God is at hand. That's a perfect tense. In the Greek language, that means it is completed. It has happened. The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the light that was dawning in Isaiah has now dawned. This idea of God bringing about a deliverance from moral and spiritual darkness, it's happened in Christ, that Christ has come. Now, this is good news to those of you who are tired of sin, sickness, and death. To think that I'm going to be led from kind of this blindness of life. I don't know what end is up. I don't have meaning and purpose in life. And I'm going to be led to something in Christ. It's huge good news that this kingdom has come. Remember, you've been with me now through all these weeks. Think about the Bible storyline. Back in Genesis, God establishes what? He establishes a kingdom. And this kingdom, of course, is given Adam and Eve, our first parents, and they're called to live under the rule of God and under the word of God for his glory. And of course, they rebel, they reject it, they don't want to live. They, they literally reject his kingdom, just like many of us will reject his kingdom. They reject it, they want to do their own thing. They want to establish their own laws. They want to be, they want to be living their own lives. And yet, God in mercy gives the promise of a seed that will come, and this seed is going to come from the woman, and this seed's going to crush the serpent. Think of the wilderness now. He's going to crush the serpent to establish this kingdom. And then this seed is, of course, given greater picture, if you will, in the promises to Abraham. Remember, Abraham's going to have a seed, and all the nations will be blessed. And then it picks up steam. This kingdom is given greater, um, given greater words in the book of Daniel. It's an eternal kingdom. It's a glorious kingdom. And so everybody's waiting for this kingdom, and Jesus is saying, it's now here. 
I am bringing a kingdom, a glorious and great kingdom. So that's kind of the picture of Jesus beginning his ministry. These verses are only a summation of what he's going to do. It's a kingdom that he's announcing. It's going to come with conflict, so don't be surprised. It's a kingdom that, for all people, it's not going to be limited to certain ethnicities. And it's a kingdom that is, in fact, a present reality. Okay, so then look with me in verse 17, because here's the response that we make. That's what he's revealing about the kingdom. Kingdom is going to be um, marked by suffering. It's going to be marked by, uh, for all peoples and all the nations, and it's going to be a present reality. So he says to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So that, that's kind of, now we're drawn into this picture real quick, that we're called to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Your repentance is not bringing the kingdom, by the way. The coming of the kingdom is what necessitates repentance. The fact that the kingdom is here is now an urgent matter. The fact that the kingdom is a present reality and for all of us is an urgent matter. Jesus assumes none of you, myself, I'm not fit for the kingdom. None of us are. He assumes everybody needs to repent. He assumes that religious and the irreligious need to repent. That there isn't anyone here. And Paul picks this language up in Acts 17. He says, the times of ignorance God has overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It is a command, incidentally. There is a command that he makes. You have to repent to enter the kingdom of heaven. So it begs the question then, what is repentance? Now there are all kinds of fakes and substitutes out there. And let me give you some of them. Because really the question I'm going to drive to at the end is, have you repented? I mean, have you repented? And if you really don't know what repentance is, then you probably shouldn't be real quick to say, oh yeah, I've repented when I was five years old. When you hear a definition of repentance, I think you'll find most five-year-olds will have trouble understanding it. doesn't mean that God doesn't move with pre-converting grace among our children. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that repentance is a, is a serious, it's a sober, it's a very pregnant word. So there's some fake, there's some substitutes for repentance. One of them, one of them would simply be this, that, that it's kind of a legal fear. In other words, that I'm scared of my actions causing certain consequences, and I'm, I'm saddened by that, that my actions have caused consequences that might have negative uh, implications to me. There's a, certain, there's a certain fear to that. That's not repentance. So Charles Taylor, that is the dictator from Liberia at The Hague being tried, here's what he said. He, he said... Um, I express my sadness and deepest sympathy for the atrocities and the crimes that were suffered by individuals and families in Sierra Leone. Now, he was clearly a dictator. He's being prosecuted and sentenced up to 80 years for the rape and the torture and the conscription of children in the army. That's no repentance. To express sympathy or to be saddened about your actions bringing about a long-term jail sentence, that's not sympathy. Or even repeated resolutions. I'm going to do better next time. Kind of the New Year's thing. You know what? I've got to get my life in order. I've I got to clean up my act. And th- that's not repentance. There, there's a man in New Jersey, literally, he was arrested for the 17th time for drunk driving, and, and he said, I'm guilty. Really? <laughs> now, I don't want to bust on Jersey, but uh, this man's had his license suspended 78 times. He doesn't get it. He can make resolutions until the end of his life. He doesn't get it. That's not repentance. 
But also, there's this idea of, of um, religious reformation. The idea of, I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to change my life, I'm going to do these things. That's not repentance. To resolve to do things is a very good thing, but it's not repenting before God. There's no acknowledgement of sin before God. Uh, another one would be um, relocating our problems. You know what? I, I do have to admit to you, I want to confess that I'm angry. The jerks, the way they drive on 540, it just ticks me off, but shouldn't have gotten angry. I'm sorry about that. That's not repentance. You know, I really struggle with lust, but if it weren't for all those images, I'll tell you, it'd be a lot easier to be just pure. Or you know what, i, I got to admit, I'm anxious and I blew my top, but you know, it's because I just have so many points of insecurity in my life. That's not repentance. When you think that by, it doesn't mean these things don't provoke us. I'm not saying that. You don't live in a vacuum. They do affect us. But to, but to shove the response, this is how I know a person has never really come to faith in Christ because they can never stand up and say, I did it, I'm wrong. I mean, folks, don't we hear that enough from politicians? I had an error in judgment. No, you didn't. You sinned. Well, I might have sinned, but I didn't. Well, that's, that's a whole other issue. <laughs> um, there's also confession without contrition. You know, there's this idea of admittance of truth, of doing something wrong, but you don't see the corrupt nature from which it flows. That's not repentance. So there's a lot of things masquerading for repentance. And if you even look at your own marriages and your relationships and when you've had conflict and when you sought to reconcile, I know you've been dipping out of this bucket. It's a lot of that. You know, I'm sorry, I wouldn't have done that if you whatever. So what, what is repentance? Well, let me say this. These are kind of fear-based repentance. Here's what Timothy Keller writes about this. He says, repentance out of mere fear is really sorrow for the consequences of sin. Sorrow over the danger of sin. It bends the will away from sin, but the heart still clings. In fear-based repentance, we don't learn to hate the sin for itself, and it doesn't lose its attractive power. We learn only to refrain from it for our own sake. Fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves. What is true repentance? What is Jesus calling us to do? Hey, folks, there is a kingdom that has come, and, and we know it, and we know it because, because our lives have changed. I thought, how can I convince people that this kingdom has come? Because we look at the brokenness of culture. We look at the issues of life. People are still dying. Uh, you know, the, the, the atheists will say, what kind of kingdom has come? I mean, people are still dying. Sin is still rampant. Things go on as they have always gone on. So where is this kingdom? Well, we know the kingdom is a reign. It's not a geographical rule. And it's a reign over the lives of individuals who are being transformed to become servants and lovers of Christ that once were not. The fact that my own life, Carol and I were just looking at probably a week ago laughing at what am I doing being a pastor? I mean, of, of, I know that probably concerns you, but <laughs> we couldn't figure it out. We're hoping one of you will tell us. But, but where I was in life, in the darkness... Yeah, you know, I think about the, yeah, Carol said one day I have to just share it with you, and I said we'll do it like on the last week of working here is what we'll do. But, but the reality of what has changed me or what has changed you, why do you even love his glory? 
Why do we even look forward to him? With those increasing years of increasing affections, what is cultivating in that? Is it just some mind game you're playing with yourself? Is it some Freudian projection of this is what I need, so therefore I'll make believe that it's true? I mean, the reality of the change that takes place in our life is evidence. The Spirit bearing witness to our spirit that we're children of God. My desire to not want to move towards sin when once I found it to be my best friend. Why? Those sins weren't destroying me, or at least they weren't at the time. So, So you have this, he's calling us to repent, a kingdom is here. And here's what repentance is. And this is a a fuller definition, so I'll repeat it. Uh, Repentance would be a turning away from sin. And it is including a turning to God out of a love for God. It's not a fear-based, it's a love-based. I'm turning away from sin and I'm I'm turning to God out of a love for God through faith in what Jesus has done for us. Receiving forgiveness. That's what repentance is. I'm turning away from sin, but I'm turning to something. By faith, I'm moving to God out of a love for God through faith in Christ. That kind of repentance is different. Uh, Charles Spurgeon defines it this way. True repentance has a distinct reference to the Savior. When we repent of sin, we must have one eye upon sin and another upon the cross, or it will be better still if we fix both of our eyes on Christ and see our transgressions only in the light of his love. There's a, there's a faith. Repentance is a turning away, and it's a turning to faith. Now listen, it involves a conviction of sin. Repentance has to have a conviction of sin, that you acknowledge you're a sinner, that you're aware of your sin, and that you are sorrowful over that sin. There has to be a sorrow associated And that's where faith comes in, because in in Matthew's gospel, he doesn't say repent and believe. He just says repent. But repentance presumes faith. I would only be repenting if I had faith. Otherwise, you don't repent. What are you repenting for? And to whom are you turning in repentance? So there has to be this awareness. Now, folks, this doesn't lead us to a neurosis. This doesn't lead us to being dour and sad people, always walking around wearing black because we're just always engaged in our sin. That's not what I'm promoting. In fact, there was an article in the um, Wall Street Journal, and it was uh, written by Robert J. Lifton. He's a pioneer in neuropsychology. And, and let me just read what he's written. He says, He's argued that today's self is relentlessly bent on reinvention, mainly in order to get rid of a nagging sense of guilt that creates tremendous anxiety despite its unknown origins. The implications are that when people know why they feel guilty and are able to find an answer to it, they actually become more stable in their identity. In other words, when you can admit and acknowledge, yes, I'm a sinner, yes, I'm in need of God's grace, that you actually grow in stability in your identity as opposed to having to keep reinventing yourself to cover this this wreckage that you're leaving behind of sin. And not just acknowledging sin, but also confessing it. That repentance does involve a confession. Well, we confess it to God for sure, because all sin is against God, but we confess it toward one another. That we confess to our spouses. We confess to our children. Our children are confessing to us. You know what? I've sinned against you. I, I I have misspoken about you. Or I have gossiped about you. 
or I've hated you or whatever the sin is. But there has to be that confession. There has to be that transaction where I'm going both vertically and horizontally. Apart from that, it's not full repentance. But repentance also involves that change of life, a breaking of some, from sin. That I'm not, I'm not going to justify my behavior anymore. I'm not going to rationalize it. I'm not going to excuse it. I'm going to own it, and I'm going to confess it to you. God, I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. In many ways, I've sinned against you. And I try to be as specific, because I think the more specific you are in confession, the greater is the release from that sin and that guilt. But not just actions change. In repentance, your attitude changes. I, I mean, you stop thinking about God as some uninvolved deity in the sky, and you see him as loving father. Christ isn't just some decent teacher and moralist, but he's in fact the Lord and he's king. That you're not really just a pretty good person, but you're in fact a redeemed sinner. You don't look at life as just what can I have out of it, but you actually look at life as, wow, I'm part of a kingdom now. This kingdom is eternal. I'm going to be eternal. Therefore, I live differently. And then last, of course, repentance would involve making right what you have wronged, making reparation, restitutions for the things that you've done. That has to be a part of it. To say, you know what, I'm really sorry I did that, and turn around and go, that's not repentance. So, so repentance involves acknowledgement of sin, a confession of the sin, a turning from sin, breaking with sin, and making right those things that have done wrong. So that's really for, the, for all of you here. This is repentance to enter the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom of God. If you haven't repented, you say, well, I've been baptized as a baby. That's not repentance. If you say, well, when I was four years old, I asked Jesus because I didn't want to go to hell. Repentance isn't simply avoiding hell. In fact, A.W. Pink, a friend, sent this to me. Um, He wrote this. Jesus is announcing a Savior from hell. Sorry. That's exactly what I'm not saying. Uh, He's saying he announces a Savior from hell rather than a Savior from sin. This is the evangelists of the day. There are multitudes who wish to escape the lake of fire who have no desire to be delivered from the carnality and worldliness of their lives. In other words, uh, yeah, in other words, repentance, uh, even as a young or old person, to just escape something, but you have no idea of where you're going, that wouldn't be repentance. Remember, it's a turning from sin to God out of a love for God. So, folks, this is for all of us. If you have not repented of your sins, then you have not met the exact expectation that Christ has for you to enter his kingdom. And so I would put that before you. If you're convicted of sin or if you want to talk to someone, come up front if you haven't repented or you don't know that your repentance has been genuine. You don't see the fruit of it like uh, John told the Pharisees, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They're religious people. But they weren't bearing fruit, therefore they hadn't repented. But, but let me speak to the Christian now. But, because there is an ongoing nature of repentance. Many of us have thought that repentance is a one-time act, I'm in the kingdom, I'm good to go now. But repentance is an ongoing work. I mean, repentance is sweet. People, if you're a Christian, I would encourage you that repentance would become your best friend while you're still breathing. Repentance reminds you of the glory of the gospel because you're able to think back on what Christ has forgiven you of. Uh, When you think about repentance, it it reminds us daily uh, that our shame and our guilt has been removed. When you think about repentance, it prepares you for heaven. Nobody wants to go to heaven cherishing their sins. We want to repent of our sins. Every day I try to, God, what 
reveal to me, you know, prayer in Psalm 139, show me if there is any wicked way in me and lead me to everlasting. I mean, repentance humbles you. It prepares you to live in this life. Repentance is something that we do. Faith and repentance every day. We repent of our sin. For, because remember what sin is, it's choosing to satisfy myself rather than obeying God. And so I repent of that sin and I choose to believe that God is better, that his pleasures are better. God wants us happy. Sin promises happiness, doesn't give it to you. At least on the short run it may, but the, the cost is great. And God promises you himself and a happiness, a satisfaction in being obedient, finding all your pleasure in God. So I would just encourage you to repent. In fact, let me just give you one more quote from Spurgeon on this repentance idea. He says this, he says, Sorrow for sin is a sweet sorrow. Don't despise, don't desire to escape it. I think uh, Roland Hill, he was an evangelist in Wales, was right when he said that his only regret in going to heaven would be that he could no more repent. True, eva- uh, true evangelical repentance is food to the saintly soul. I don't know, beloved, when I am more perfectly happy than when I'm weeping for sin at the foot of the cross. For that is the safest place in which I can stand. So repentance is a good thing for the believer. Cleansing us, preparing us, readying us to see God. You all sin. You all need to repent. I sin, I need to repent. So Jesus is giving us a glorious message here. He's saying the kingdom has come. Listen, the kingdom, it's going to come with suffering. Be prepared. You know, count the cost before you enter. This kingdom is for all people, all of us. And this kingdom is a present reality. And to participate, to enjoy it, it begins with simply this, repentance and faith. So let's take a few minutes now and and give thanks to God, if you can, or uh, you may want to silently confess and and write your own soul before God. But I will begin, uh, David will close us in a few minutes. And we desire for this time, uh, because we've heard the word together, we want to continue to worship together and so uh, we would just ask that your prayers would be loud so that we could hear and agree with you uh, and that they would be brief that others might be able to pray with us let me begin father thank you for the grace that you have given to us in jesus christ who has come to establish a glorious kingdom father thank you for the call to repent even the commanding and the grace that you'll give to those to exercise it. Father, I pray just for the clarity of the word today, that it would yield fruit forever. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.